The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Never, never do that. Today on The Lab Report, Dr. Ben Bigman. PhD researcher, best-selling author, and metabolic genius. Yeah, hold on to your skulls, people. We're talking what causes insulin resistance. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report. Why are people holding onto their skulls, Michael? Oh, you know, trying to prevent spontaneous blood drainage. Oh, good looking out. Hello! Hey, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How goes it today? Crushing it. How about you? Yeah, doing well. Cool. Cool. Welcome to the lab report. Welcome, everyone, to this podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine and specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and uh, occasionally we get into some biochemistry. Oh, today is the day. Some biophysiology and some physiochemistry well, and all of that let's stuff. Let's do some housekeeping first. If you're brand new to the show, welcome. And if you're returning, thank you. And I hope you will go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to the show. Re- Please. Review, leave us some stars. That'd be excellent. Like that. yeah. yeah. We'd appreciate that. And if you have additional feedback, you can email that feedback to the email address podcast at gdx.net. And that uh, falls right in Patty and mine's lap. But I think, importantly, Michael and I, Michael, I think you share my excitement about today's episode. I am pumped up. Whoa, Dr. Ben Bickman is here, and we are totally, like, fanning out over here. Yeah. This guy is incredibly smart. And uh, he's an author, he's a PhD, uh, has his own research lab, and uh, he really speaks a lot on insulin resistance and what causes insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction. So let's just, uh, let's get right into it. Yep. So, Patty, what? today we have Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Oh, I know. I'm freaking out. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Bickman. So, Dr. Benjamin Bickman earned a PhD in bioenergetics at East Carolina University with a focus on the adaptations to metabolic surgeries in obesity. As a postdoctoral fellow with the Duke National University of Singapore, he continued to explore metabolic disorders focusing on insulin resistance. Currently, as a professor at Brigham Young University and the director of its diabetes research lab, Dr. Bickman has continued to study insulin, its role as a regulator of human metabolism and insulin's relevance in chronic disease. In addition to his research and teaching, Dr. Bickman actively serves as a research mentor to undergraduate and graduate students. He and his students have been widely published. And his recent book, Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease and How to Fight It, reveals groundbreaking evidence on insulin resistance and outlines a plan to reverse and prevent it. And with that, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Bickman. Oh, Michael, Patty, thanks so much. I really admire the podcast you're putting together and just how unique it is. <laughs> and I'm delighted delighted to to have a nice chat with oh, you guys. Thank you. And we're honored as well. But, you know, just to get started, your undergraduate bachelor's and master's degrees are in exercise science and physiology. And we've had other guests on the show in that same field. But you're a little bit different. What about that training led you to pursue insulin as a focus for your PhD and then ongoing research career? Right. Yeah. It's, I, I very much, I will forever be grateful for my, my, what I, I guess I could consider a very applied background mm-hmm. because it allowed me as I got deeper into biochemistry, um, especially the biochemistry relevant to metabolic disorders, it allowed me to always remember what the point of it was or to always remember what uh, the, the, the pathway or the phenomenon that I was studying in the, in the context of the, of the whole body. Mm-hmm. So my, my background, uh, what it was, of course, as you know, at exercise physiology. And during the course of my master's degree, I had stumbled upon uh, research published a few years prior in the late 90s detailing how fat cells were actively secreting pro-inflammatory cytokines, mm-hmm. in particular TNF-alpha, a one that your audience would very likely be familiar yep. with sure. uh, insofar as it's kind of one of the poster child uh, markers of inflammation. And that was very revealing to me at the time because, uh, first of all, I'd never heard 
uh, of the fat cells secreting anything. Now, we'd already known about leptin, so that was out there, and hmm. I should have known about it. Mm -hmm. But it, it, I, I had no idea that the fat cell, that fat tissue was an endocrine organ, that it was secreting proteins that would be sensed by distant distal tissues and cells, and those cells would respond, yeah. you know, the very definition of an endocrine uh, organ. Mm -hmm. And so that was a, a, gr a great revelation to me. But second, uh, it, it uh, addressed what was a growing interest of mine, which was the connection between obesity and type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. that, that, that observation that those two went hand in hand, of course, had been long observed or, or known, but there wasn't a good explanation for what connected them. And so the idea that the fat tissue as it expanded was contributing to this state of low grade or what would they what they call subclinical inflammation, and that was then contributing to insulin resistance in in other tissues, that was fascinating to me. And that was the moment of transition. My master's thesis, as it was, looked at um, the connection between aerobic fitness and inflammation in the body. It was a pretty weak little thing, but it was good enough to get a thesis <laughs> out. So I had an interest in growing familiarity with inflammation, but that publication really in my, in my memory, you know, 20 years ago, that really was the moment where I said, I don't care to study the muscle anymore. I want to study fat cells and, and namely this intermediating event connecting weight gain to diseases. And at the time I thought it was no more relevant to just type two diabetes. I thought that was the connection and that's where it stopped. And, 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 and that intermediating event was insulin resistance and it is insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And so that was uh, the increasing interest during my uh, PhD work, looking at the improvements in insulin sensitivity in people immediately following gastric bypass procedures, which mm -hmm. is a pretty phenomenal shift in metabolic function. Right. Yeah. Although that is not meant to be, um, I, I don't want anyone to un misunderstand me. I'm not stating this as me giving uh, gastric bypass procedures a green light. I think those are, that, that's a topic perhaps for another time. But yeah. uh, th then my postdoctoral work, I could much more explicitly focus on insulin resistance and some of the mechanisms that drive it. And to bring me up to where I am now, having run my own lab for 10 years, it, and, and taught an undergraduate class to future biomedical practitioners. I teach pathophysiology, so it's all the future pre-med, and it's the pre-med and the nursing students mostly. Sure, sure. I, it was, it was the, it, through the course of teaching that class where I began to realize what became the content of, of my book, Why We Get Sick, which was that insulin resistance was more relevant than just type 2 diabetes, and it really having a hand to, to varying degrees, causal or, or just accelerating almost every chronic disease that that we're worried about nowadays so i can i can really point it to one moment to answer your question yeah. explicitly yeah. my interests shifted from exercise into if you will the opposite of exercise um, you know namely obesity and metabolic disorders rather than metabolic health um, by nature of that manuscript um, which detailed how fat cells are contributing to an inflammatory burden in the body and that then mediating some of the consequences of, of too much fat. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, from there and getting into insulin resistance and, and metabolic dysfunction, you know, maybe we can just take like a 30,000 foot view and start with uh, how you kind of describe in, in your own terms, the concept of insulin resistance to maybe people who've only really think about insulin as it relates to diabetes. Um, it, that would be mm -hmm. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. So first of all, by by to define insulin resistance let's just briefly actually for your audience i would need to define what insulin is but i will just say this insulin is almost totally viewed through the lens of glucose mm -hmm. and i consider that to be massively unfair mm -hmm. because insulin does all kinds of things uh, at, at all kinds of different cells literally and i don't use that term too liberally literally <laughs> right. every cell in the body has insulin receptors every cell in the body from from bone to brain from liver to lung it doesn't matter all of them respond to insulin and because all of these cells do so many different things it's not surprising to think that insulin does different things at these cells you know what insulin does at a, at a muscle cell 
it, for example, its most famous action, namely pushing the, allowing the glucose to rush in from the blood into the muscle cell, thereby lowering blood glucose. That's almost the entire mechanism whereby insulin lowers glucose by allowing the muscles to gobble it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but at, at the at the red blood cell, that's not at all what the mechanism is. The same with the liver cell. The liver cell doesn't need insulin at all um, to pull in glucose. It will do that as much as it wants at any time, whether glucose is t- uh, whether insulin is totally absent or whether it's at a thousand microunits per mil. It, w- it wouldn't matter. So, my, back to my point: looking at insulin through the lens of glucose, that's not wrong, mm-hmm. but it's also not fair because it's not allowing us to account for all of the incredible things insulin does that has nothing to do with glucose, like. For example, at blood vessels, insulin stimulates the production of nitric oxide in endothelial cells, which, of course, promotes vasodilation, Mm -hmm. which is how insulin increases blood flow through tissues by lowering the blood pressure and then allowing blood to just go, you know, to an area of lower pressure. The vessels are dilated. It starts pushing more blood through that area. And that's so the nitric oxide uh, if uh, consequence or result of insulin has nothing to do with its effects on glucose. And and we could have, I could um, mention numerous other examples, but I guess I'd sum it up by saying insulin's thematic effect is to tell a cell what to do with energy in general. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, yeah. it wants a cell or a tissue um, to take in molecules and store them in some way shape or form either as a either as an energetic molecule like glycogen or triglyceride or as another molecule like a, a supporting lipid that may be used in cell support like cell, cell structure or organelle structure or uh, a lipid based hormone or a, a proteins insulin will stimulate all of those things now then to get to what your question actually was mm-hmm. uh, what is insulin resistance at the whole body, insulin resistance is two things. And, and before I say the two of them, let me just back up for a moment and say that insulin resistance as a term was first coined by scientists looking at the effects of insulin in isolated cell cultures. Mm-hmm. We found that if, when you would treat these cells with insulin, when we looked at the biochemical pathway that insulin would stimulate, we found that that pathway would get compromised it was less responsive to insulin, or in other words, those cells had become insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. So insulin resistance as a term is a cellular event, okay. but that doesn't encompass the entirety of what insulin resistance is in the body. So some cells in the body are insulin resistant when we say that someone has insulin resistance. Uh-huh. Okay. Some cells are insulin resistant, but not all of them. Um, and we can elaborate that more in detail if you want in a bit to talk about specific diseases. But the second part of this is equally as relevant to understand the, the full consequences of insulin resistance, and that is hyperinsulinemia. You do not have, and, and I mean this, whether it is pathological insulin resistance or the actual physiological insulin resistance, and that term is invoked wildly and appropriately in my mind, but the physiological insulin resistance that we see with puberty or pregnancy, and, and that's mm-hmm. it to, to my knowledge, uh, every time you have hyperinsulinemia, there's no exception. If we are invoking insulin resistance to any degree, whether it's the pathological that's causing type 2 diabetes or the physiological, which is letting that woman gain more fat during pregnancy and fostering the fetus to grow quickly and develop fat itself, uh, then the hyperinsulinemia is always a part of this. It is the other side of the coin that we call insulin resistance. So that is insulin resistance. So so taking what you just said, if we know that all these cells react to insulin differently at, at a, from a resistance standpoint or a metabolic dysfunction, where does the resistance start and why? Like why mm-hmm. do these cells become resistant? Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. So the 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 uh, most honest answer is we don't know. Okay. Now, that's not good enough, of course. It's <laughs> um, not good enough for me, too. But, but I do mean it. I would want anyone listening to know that as much as I may be considered an authority on insulin resistance, that also means I, I am humble enough to, to admit that there is no – I am unaware of any evidence that, that confirms this is where insulin resistance starts in, in a human. Now, however – uh, because I do focus on this, and I'm, I, I consider myself well well informed. I, I do. Th- I will. I will speculate. 
And I think that insulin resistance starts at fat cells. And there's some evidence, I believe, to support that, of course, which is why I'm mentioning it, Interesting. Uh, which cool. I'll come back to with regards to drug therapies. Uh, but if uh, the fat cells will be the first domino to fall. And then once the fat cell falls, so to speak, it starts spreading the insulin resistance to the other tissues like the muscles, the liver, the brain, the, the alpha cells of the pancreas, not the beta cells, but mm -hmm. the glucagon producing cells. And in fact, once the alpha cells, the liver and the muscle have become insulin resistant, then you've transitioned from insulin resistance, which is pre-diabetes, into outright type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas insulin resistance is a state of hyperinsulinemia, but normoglycemia. So even though the person's experiencing much greater levels of insulin, it's enough. It's keeping the glucose in check, which is why it's so often missed clinically yeah. Yeah. because we only look at the glucose. We don't look at the insulin. But it, it's once that once the insulin resistance has spread to the muscle, liver, and the alpha cells of the pancreas, now the glucose starts to climb. And then 10 or 20 years after the insulin was up, we detect the problem and call it type 2 diabetes. So the insulin resistance probably starts at the fat cell. And specifically, it's when the fat cells have grown in a, in a sick way, if you will. So very briefly, when someone's gaining fat mass, it can gain, they can gain fat through two mechanisms. And uh, it's either going to be a, a proliferation of fat cells, which is hyperplasia mm -hmm. or the hyperplastic fat, okay. or it's going to be the individual growth of each fat cell itself without ever increasing the number. And then the fat cells themselves get very big and that's hypertrophy of the fat cells or hypertrophic fat growth. Hyperplastic fat growth is is good, um, but it, it's it's sort of a paradox, um, as I'll elaborate on. So if if someone's growing fat, uh, growing their fat through hyperplasia, the moment a fat cell starts to get bigger, it just recruits a new fat cell, and then that fat cell starts to get bigger. And any time the fat cells start to get big, they just pull in new fat cells. Mm -hmm. and, and so no fat cell is ever too big, if you will, but, you know, certainly bigger than it was before. Mm -hmm. But basically, it's like the, the hotel, the inn always has room. It always has vacancy. There's always room for one more in hyperplastic fat cells because the moment they get big, they just make another one. In contrast, when fat cells are growing through hypertrophy, they don't have that capacity to proliferate and the individual fat cells start to reach a maximum dimension. And this can be several times bigger than the normal fat cells, three or four or five times bigger than where they were before. And this excessive, these excessively big fat cells now have a problem. If they continue, and, and, and what would be happening in both of these instances is sufficient calories being consumed and elevated insulin. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, it is impossible to expand fat mass without insulin being elevated over its baseline. It simply can't happen, mm -hmm. which is partly why when you have a type 1 diabetic who has, is insul truly insulin deficient, they cannot, even if they eat 10,000 calories, store any fat on their bodies at all. And people want to say, well, it's just because they're peeing out all their energy as glucose. No. The loss of glucose cannot account for the caloric um, differential here. They just, they cannot store fat. It's impossible. So insulin is essential to this. But nevertheless, so uh, someone's growing fat through hyperplasia. They're growing fat through hypertrophy. The problem with the hypertrophic fat, again, which was my point before I distracted myself, <laughs> is that the fat cells start to get so big that they say to insulin, Insulin, I cannot continue to store fat like you're telling me to do. And even though you're trying to tell me to not break down my triglycerides through lipolysis, mm -hmm. I'm going to do it anyway. And so the fat cell can't stop eating the fat. It's insulin continues to force feed mm -hmm. the fat cell. But now the fat cell will start leaking fat. It is experiencing lipolysis, even though the elevated insulin is trying to stop it. But the fat cell is basically saying, insulin, I'm too big. Yeah. I've reached a maximum dimension. If I continue to grow like you want me to, I will die and I will hurt the body. So I'm going to start leaking my, my stored fat as um, free fatty acids or non-esterified fatty acids. Right. And so the, the hypertrophic, in now insulin-resistant fat cell is releasing free fatty acids, contributing to just sort of the lipid burden in the body and increasing the likelihood that those lipids will get stored elsewhere and in converted into other lipids that that are actually problematic, which I'll get to in a moment, because you have to understand the second problem of the hypertrophic fat cell. As the hyper as the fat cell is getting uh, ever bigger, 
all of them are getting ever bigger. They are getting increasingly distant from capillaries and they're becoming hmm. hypoxic. Hmm. Oh, okay. That, of course, is incompatible for cellular survival. Mm -hmm. And so they will start releasing pro-inflammatory cytokines in order to stimulate vascular growth. They need, they're trying to tell the body, these little capillary buds around them, hey, expand, grow new capillaries because I'm not getting enough um, of what I need. I'm not exchanging gases well enough. I'm not exchanging metabolites well enough. We need new blood vessels and pro-inflammatory cytokines are a way to do that. So the fat cell is releasing free fatty acids. It's releasing pro-inflammatory cytokines in order to survive. And so we can't blame the hypertrophic fat cell. It is doing this to survive and it works, which is better than a, a bunch of fat cells just um, undergoing apoptosis or not even apoptosis, just necrosis, mm -hmm. perhaps that the consequences would be disastrous there. And, but, but in its efforts to survive, the fat cell then starts bringing down other tissues because when those free fatty acids and those pro-inflammatory cytokines start getting to the liver or the muscle or any other tissues, then they yeah. can result in the formation of a lipid family called ceramides. And ceramides will directly antagonize the insulin biochemical pathway, mm -hmm. resulting in insulin resistance in the cells as, as we know it and understand it in even laboratory settings. So that's, the, that's probably where insulin resistance starts mm -hmm. at the fat cells. And it's because the fat cells are hypertrophic. And I mentioned some drug evidence I bet your, your audience knows there is a class of drugs called thiazolidinediones, mm -hmm. and those are what's called PPAR gamma activators. They are a fascinating class of drug because it takes hypertrophic fat cells and makes them hyperplastic. Interesting. So it's forcing this shift in fat in the very nature of the way our fat cells are working. And it basically says to the really fat fat cells, hey, you're too fat. We're going to recruit in some new fat cells, and now they can help carry some of this fat. So we directly transition from hypertrophic fat to hyperplastic fat, and the person becomes remarkably insulin sensitive, remarkably quickly. Mm -hmm. But paradoxically, they get fatter. And that's part of this paradox where when the hypertrophic fat cells become insulin resistant, the person generally stops gaining weight. They're kind of reaching a limit. Hmm. Not that mm -hmm. they start to lose it, okay. but they've reached their limit and they generally have stopped there. Whereas the, the person who, can, who has hyperplastic fat growth, they can then get massively obese. These are the people who become truly morbidly obese, 400, 500, 600 pounds, most people could never get that fat. Their fat cells simply won't allow them to. Mm -hmm. These other people genetically have this advantage, if you want to call it that, where they're, they can always continue to store more fat. That's basically what TZDs are doing, these PPAR gamma activators. Um, they, they force the fat cells to go to hyperplasia, and the insulin resistance and the type 2 diabetes gets much better very quickly. That, to me, suggests this is a fat-first event interesting namely that's, insulin resistance wow. starts in the fat cells wow that's fascinating that's and and to think it's a little bit counterintuitive that as maybe the the, the person that in the fat cells go from being hypertrophic to hyperplasia they're going to gain more weight but then they're also becoming more insulin sensitive at the same time that's which right. is, yeah <laughs> which is fascinating uh, I, and I want to get into maybe some of the other factors that signal fat cells to become more hypertrophic as compared to hyperplastic but I'm also wondering uh, with the increase of free fatty acids that you mentioned, um, as fat cells become more hypertrophic, they're spilling these free fatty acids into the bloodstream. Is that also explain some of the sequelae around uh, fatty liver and fatty muscle tissue? Um, or is that a different mechanism? You mentioned the ceramides, but I'm also wondering whether there's actual fat deposition as a consequence as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know of tracer studies that would confirm this, so I'm going to speculate a bit. In the liver, it's it would it would be a mix where certainly those free fatty acids are undoubtedly contributing to the liver the the liver lipid pool that would later get us to the point of um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. However, the liver has a tremendous uh, ability to produce its own lipid, but there's but there's no doubt that influx that efflux of free fatty acids from the fat and the subsequent influx into the hepatocytes of the liver would, would contribute to fatty liver disease, no mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. In the muscle, also undoubtedly, the free fatty acids are contributing 
to the muscle lipid uptake. Um, but then in, in both tissues, so, so we could apply the same thing to anywhere. If someone has fatty pancreas or even this sounds bizarre, but even fatty tongue, mm-hmm. we know from ultrasounds that people can have fatty tongues. And that's why with weight loss, someone, their breathing may get so much better when they're supine. Mm-hmm. It could be that literally their tongue is thinner than it was before and it's not blocking the airway as much as it was before. But nevertheless, all of that ectopic fat deposition uh, certainly will 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 uh, be pathogenic. There's no question. But the degree to which it will then compromise insulin signaling in those tissues just depends on what the fat is turned into. If those free fatty acids are taken into, say, a muscle cell and converted into triglycerides, then it won't do anything to insulin sensitivity. Triglycerides are a totally inert, uh, well, metabolically, with regards to insulin resistance, lipid. And we see this definitively uh, in in um, very physically active individuals where once upon a time triglycerides were thought to contribute to muscle insulin resistance because in people that were overweight with insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, we found that their muscles were very fat. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we found the same thing in very endurance trained athletes. Their muscles were also very fat. And that gave rise to what was called the athlete's paradox as this work I think was coming out of the University of Pittsburgh Know, 20 or 30 years ago. And, and, and so basically uh, confirming triglycerides are totally inert. They're not mm. exacerbating any metabolic problems. But if those free fatty acids are converted into ceramides, which is one of the many, many types of lipids they could be converted into, um, if it is ceramide and inflammation stimulates the production of ceramides, mm. then it would most certainly be contributing to the insulin resistance of the tissue. Awesome. Well, let me just follow up on something. I think Michael just touched on this. What are some of the signals that kind of tell your body to make hypertrophic versus hyperplastic fat? Is that diet driven? Is it genetic driven? Like what, what, yeah. what's the signal there? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so undoubtedly there is uh, some genetic um, d- uh, differences that would account for this. I- indeed, even the expression of like these gene regulators like PPAR gamma and its, its downstream genes Um, someone would absolutely have inherent differences in the expression of those genes that dictate how fat cells grow. There are, however, some environmental components as well. And one of them is a metabolite of ceramides that I just mentioned, where there's a molecule called ceramide 1-phosphate. And Mm -hmm. and that can um, force a fat cell to undergo hypertrophy rather than hyperplasia. Mm -hmm. And also, um, uh, well, importantly, uh, ceram- so that ceramide metabolite could perhaps uh, accumulate if inflammation is too high, just because there'd be more ceramides in general. Mm-hmm. But also insulin in- itself, chronically elevated insulin, can drive that. And we published a paper to that effect um, uh, a couple of years ago. And-, and then second, another type of fat called linoleic acid. And this would be, the, if you guys have spoken with Paul Saladino, yep. you've most certainly yes. spoken about this. Uh-huh. And, and and so anyone who wants more details than I'll go into could certainly go back and listen to that podcast you had with him because he's become a very big advocate of scrutinizing um, linoleic acid, which mm-hmm. I uh, agree with him on. Mm-hmm. Linoleic acid can be metabolized into, well, any number of noxious molecules, and some of which will uh, prevent a fat cell from proliferating and thus uh, the only option provided would be uh, hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. So those two types of fats, um, ceramide, a ceramide metabolite called ceramide 1-phosphate and a linoleic acid metabolite, uh, in particular 4-H&E, those both um, force hypertrophy. They, they, they foreclose the opportunity for hyperplasia in a fat cell that's being told to grow. Wow. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And, and this entire model um, is... I mean, I haven't heard it, I guess, as much as perhaps a muscle-centric model of insulin resistance. And it makes me wonder, like, is that because muscle is kind of the main glucose sink and, and we've thought of insulin resistance as really being glucose-centric and that's why we think of muscle maybe being the, the, the starting place or the birthplace for insulin resistance? Or, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on why so many people talk about the muscle first? Yeah. In, fa- in fact, Michael, I think you nailed it. I think that's, that is the perfect observation. And I will say that I went through my own evolution because when I first started looking at insulin resistance, I also very much thought it was almost completely a muscle event. And I was at the time, much to my embarrassment, totally unaware of the fact that the fat cells became insulin resistant at all. I, I knew that they were becoming 
that, that they were releasing free uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines, as I elaborated earlier in my sort of history, uh, that was the beginning of it for me. But I didn't think that meant that the fat cells were becoming insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, they might be contributing to the insulin resistance, but 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 it, it's starting at the muscle. Uh, and I, I think you're right. I think you nailed it. Because we only look at insulin resistance through the lens of glucose and and even more as the first step of uh, towards type 2 diabetes. And indeed, type 2 diabetes is completely built on a foundation of insulin resistance. So it is appropriate to look at type uh, at insulin resistance as prediabetes. But uh, it, it does mean we look at it wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in fact, I would one of the reasons I'm enthusiastic about the, the audience that you guys have is I consider that a lot of the listeners are are the front lines of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And and my hope is that someone after listening to this will look at their patient who's gaining weight and they are on uh, an, an antihypertensive medication. Maybe it's a lady and she's also on a medication for her PCOS. Mm -hmm. And rather than this these being looked at as distinct problems and the patient ha always has normal glucose. And so they say, well, there's nothing really metabolically uh, upset here, nothing towards insulin resistance or type two diabetes. But the reality is if we shifted the paradigm to an insulin centric one rather mm -hmm. than glucose, yeah. we then would realize, Oh wait, this patient is hyperinsulinemic. I wonder if it's the insulin resistance that, that is actually the core, the, the root cause common even between seem things seemingly as distinct as hypertension and PCOS, when in reality, those are both incredibly intimately consequential from insulin resistance itself. So uh, again, I'm, I'm sort of belaboring the point here, but yes, I think insulin resistance has historically been viewed as a muscle th event. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and that's not wrong if we view what is if we're asking what is the transition from insulin resistance to hyperglycemia and type two diabetes, then muscle insulin resistance is completely relevant. Yeah, that but that sense. doesn't mean that's where it started. Yeah, and, yeah. and and so when we shift the focus to look at insulin itself, I think it allows us to look a little better at the fat cell and to detect medical problems earlier and treat them better. Well, that makes perfect sense, actually. And and to your point, I mean, we're speaking now to many functional medicine clinicians out there. You wrote this genius book called Why We Get Sick. And in this book, you discuss insulin resistance as the root cause of many chronic diseases and different ways to improve it. To, to improve it. What are some of the major diseases linked to this that might not be apparent to most of us? Yes. So type 2 diabetes is the low-hanging fruit. That's right. certainly the obvious one. But even then... Even then, having said that, people will say, well, of course, insulin resistance is, is, in the, is the pivotal moment in the ideology of type 2 diabetes. But to really acknowledge that, that does mean we need to look at insulin rather than glucose, at least in addition to glucose. So at each of these patient visits, let's just not do glucose and lipids. Let's mm -hmm. include the insulin on that panel. Mm -hmm. But So type 2 diabetes is the obvious one. Um, less obvious would say be polycystic ovary syndrome that I mentioned a moment ago. And I'll elaborate on that just because it, it's such a clear mechanism and yet it's so often misunderstood. Yep, so do. in, uh, of course, as most people here probably know, every, all of the estrogens were once testosterone, mm -hmm. all of them yeah. in, in men and women, the testes and the ovaries convert testosterone into the estrogens by a nature of an enzyme called aromatase. Right. Now, ovaries do that more than testes do, which is why women have relatively more estrogens than men do. But that conversion is absolutely essential for the, the peak in estrogens that a woman experiences um, right immediately prior to and indeed um, causes ovulation. She must have that estrogen spike. And the failure of the estrogen spike results in no follicle ovulating and the follicles lingering. And now the ovaries are filled with these follicular cysts. And thus we have the disease, polycystic okay. ovary syndrome. Mm -hmm. However, insulin inhibits aromatase. It inhibits that enzyme that converts this pivotal androgen into the estrogens. And so if a woman has insulin resistance, which is also, of course, hyperinsulinemia, then that elevated insulin is actually inhibiting aromatase too much because the theca cells do not become insulin resistant. They maintain their insulin sensitivity all the time. 
And now they're suffering from the hyperinsulinemia because in the elevated insulin is doing too much at them. They hear it too well. It's pounding in, in the ears, so to speak, of the hmm. theca cells. Yeah. And so the elevated insulin is resulting in elevated androgens and insufficient estrogens. And now we have all of the features of polycystic ovary syndrome, which should be called something like metabolic infertility mm -hmm. because wow. it highlights the relevance, the true background of the disease. Also, something as common as hypertension is almost always a consequence of insulin resistance through several distinct mechanisms um, uh, that I won't go into now. Uh, but, but that is why when someone has hypertension uh, and we put them on a diet that improves their insulin sensitivity, their blood pressure will drop so quickly within uh, within like a day or two mm -hmm. that they have to stop their antihypertensive medications to stop from fainting. Right. Yeah. So those are two examples. And, and others would include uh, Alzheimer's disease, um, erectile dysfunction, uh, fatty liver disease, uh, osteoarthritis, and, and more. That's fascinating. And I find how you explain the mechanism of PCOS so interesting. And I, I have a, a follow-up question, which is just my own confusion, but um, the aromatase enzyme is also it, it, true or false. I, I might be wrong about this, but it might be overexpressed or is it more expressed in adipose tissue? So, yes. and so it seems counterintuitive that you have this insulin signaling, decreasing aromatase activation, but then you also in an insulin resistance individual might have more adiposity, which might be stimulating aromatase. So it's almost kind of like this confused mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Good for you, Michael. Yeah. So to my knowledge, that overexpression of aromatase is a male-specific event. Mm. It's not something that we see as much in in, in adipocytes of females, mm. and mm. so it's not it's not uh, and in the male fat that is perhaps becoming insulin resistant, which fat cells do. The insulin induced insulin is less capable of inhibiting aromatase, and so in in a in an insulin resistant overweight man, we have the exact opposite phenomenon, where he now has too much aromatase. And so it's, it's like I, I kind of joke, although I don't mean to make light of a serious situation, but it's almost like there are ovaries in his adipose mm. tissue. Mm. Um, and so in that case, it's this selective overexpression of aromatase in adipocytes in men. But now the adipocytes are insulin resistant. And so insulin, whereas it is inhibiting aromatase in the theca cells of the ovary, which do not become insulin resistant, it is not inhibiting aromatase in the fat cells of the overweight man. That interesting. is yeah. interesting. Thanks for I that have clarification. Never heard that. Well, the other thing is we've had other guests on our show. And here in functional medicine, they often call Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes. Is that based mm -hmm. on a mechanism of like an inflammatory mechanism or what's the mechanism as it relates to the brain and Alzheimer's being type 3 diabetes? Yeah, great question. I actually don't like that term, although I know it's used and, yeah. and you're right in invoking it because people have published papers using that term. I don't like using it because I fear that it kind of muddies the water, it confuses the issue. Mm -hmm. And people are left thinking, well, is this a completely distinct new form of diabetes? Mm -hmm. And no, it's not. Yeah. It's just something related to type 2 diabetes, namely the insulin resistance. So brain cells of the myriad cells in the brain, and there are a lot of different cell types, of course, some of them have these insulin-dependent glucose transporters called GLUT4 we typically, when I teach my students about GLUT4 and all the various glucose transporters in the body, only one, namely GLUT4, is insulin dependent. All the other glucose transporters, all the other, I think, 12 of them, or there are probably more all the time, uh, they, they are open doors. Glucose can simply come in or out of the cell based on concentration gradients of the glucose. But GLUT4 is an exception. It is insulin mediated. The brain has some insulin independent glucose transporters, but it also has GLUT4. We, we know this without any, uh, beyond any doubt, beyond any debate. And that means insulin is at least partly relevant for the brain glucose uptake. We, we know decades even before a person is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, you can detect a compromised glucose uptake into the brain of these individuals. Oh. And when someone has even mild cognitive impairment, let alone full-blown Alzheimer's disease, we can detect through PET scans and radio-labeled glucose infusions that brain glucose uptake and metabolism is significantly lower than that of a, of a brain, a person who has no sign of dementia. Hmm. Part of this could very well be 
And, uh, and so I, I'm saying, I'm kind of qualifying this, uh, but because the brain has become insulin resistant, we can see this in isolated cell cultures where these, these cells can become insulin resistant and thus have compromised glucose uptake. Uh, and, and so, so with, with Alzheimer's disease, I think the more accurate term rather than type three diabetes would simply be insulin resistance of the brain. But, but basically the brain being such an energy hog, at rest, in other words, when the skeletal muscles aren't busy, mm -hmm. the brain is one of the highest, it's like the top two or three uh, metabolic rate organs. It's not the top one. The kidneys blow everything away, frankly. Mm -hmm. But the brain, the brain is, is, it's up there, relatively speaking. And, and it, so it has a high energetic demand. It needs energy. And because most people eat so much carbohydrate mm -hmm. uh, and so frequently, yeah. That means that the glucose is the primary fuel for those people's brains um, because the glucose is high and the insulin is high. And so the, the brain is almost dependent on glucose. And so as the brain becomes insulin resistant and glucose is still the only available fuel, now it cannot get enough of that glucose. And, and then the brain starts to suffer um, with, for example, decayed thinking or dementia. And even in the case of uh, you have similar to a similar degree or to, to some degree, you have the same thing underlying um, some certain forms of migraine headaches. But uh, hmm. there's a bit of a nuance here that I just feel like I have to mention. The brain can use another fuel, in fact, is, is eager to use it, uh, namely ketones. Right. It's just that our, our modern diet, which keeps eleva uh, insulin elevated every waking moment and indeed most of our sleeping moments as well, then they are never making ketones. And so while the brain is starving, even though it's swimming and the body is swimming in a sea of glucose, the right. brain can't get it. Um, it's, it's begging for this alternative fuel, namely ketones, but it, we are not giving it to the brain because of how frequently we're eating um, insulin spiking carbohydrates. We can only make ketones, this other fuel that, that again, the brain will use very readily and even preferentially uh, we don't have the ketones because our elevated insulin won't allow the liver to make them. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. That's that's fascinating as well. And we talk a lot about diet and lifestyle, you know, on this specific show. Um, and so I would I would think with that you're a big proponent of things like the ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting and and its ability to affect insulin resistance and perhaps uh, slow it down in ways. Yes. Yes. I, I am. Uh, and I would I want to just clarify that I am an advocate of a low carb diet, even to the point of ketogenic in the context of insulin resistance. I wouldn't want someone to think I'm trying to say, if I could rewrite the dietary guidelines right now, I have uh -huh. every American on a low carb ketogenic diet. No, not at all. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't do that at all. But if, if I, I firmly believe or my firm conclusion based on the sum of all human clinical data if we are looking to improve insulin resistance and its related disorders, a low carb diet is superior to a low fat diet. And, and, and I do state that um, conclusively and uh, simply because of the clinical data. Now, I would, I'm not saying a low fat diet isn't helpful. In, indeed, you can take the standard American eating a standard American diet, put them on any dietary regimen, any, any diet, any way of eating, and they're going to get better, mm -hmm. uh, including a low fat, you know, vegan diet, which, which I have, I, I do not think is healthy long-term, not at all. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I would, I'm quick to admit that th there are studies that support that paradigm. Take a standard American diet, shift it to a plant-based low fat diet. Insulin resistance will get better. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I know those studies myself. However, what happens when we take people eating a standard American diet and then put them on either a low fat diet or a low carb diet, the low carb diet will win mm -hmm. almost every time. And in fact, I will say the low fat diet never wins. And, and that's why it never beats, it never outperforms the low carb diet. And so I'm okay with people um, altering the diet to fit their needs and their preferences. I would say that regardless of the approach, it must involve the avoidance of refined starches and sugars. And, and you can do that, of course, on a plant-based diet. You can do that very well. Yeah. You just, you cannot be getting your carbohydrates from bags and boxes with barcodes. If that's the way the person is eating, they're eating foods that are spiking their insulin and then they will never resolve their insulin resistance. You have to give the body a break 
from incessant insulin spikes in order to improve insulin sensitivity. And so right. that's also applies then to fasting or intermittent fasting. It's really just the that's decreasing right. of insulin spikes. Well, what are some other strategies to combat insulin resistance short of decreasing mm -hmm. your carbs and, and fasting? Yeah, yeah. In fact, let's not even say, uh, Patty, just to be fair to anyone listening, I won't even say decreasing carbs. I, I would say just control the carbs. Mm -hmm. if, if, you know, whatever, just trend, shift uh, shift the source of the carbohydrates to focus on less less starchy, less sugary okay. foods and yeah. focus on the less starchy and sugary fruits and vegetables. Right. So, yeah, other than diet, which is absolutely the elephant in the room, that is the right. single biggest, most yeah. powerful lever <laughs> someone can manipulate. But other than that, um, um, controlling stress, which, of course, I know is much easier said than done, right. especially insofar as I lump in poor sleep habits with stress. And, and, and I say that with all the sympathy in the world, because even when I have the most perfect sleep hygiene, I'm just always a bit of a terrible sleeper. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, so, so I say this with, with uh, sympathy, but uh, controlling stress, if someone can um, manipulate their environment in such a way, and maybe their relationships and their whatever they can do, and, and, and I realize that there are variables that are outside someone's control, whatever variables are within a person's sphere of influence that can help lower their stress, it will improve insulin sensitivity. And that's because the main stress hormones, cortisol and epinephrine, are insulin antagonist hormones. Huh. They, when they are elevated, insulin must work harder. So those hormones, especially cortisol, especially cortisol, um, can directly cause insulin resistance. And this is why when we are, when a patient is given a cortisol analog to control inflammation like prednisone, mm. they will become insulin resistant. They will gain weight. It controls the inflammation. So maybe it's helping with their, their autoimmune disorder and their, you know, if let's say like a rheumatoid arthritis, but we can very well expect the patient to become insulin resistant, if not even eventually type two diabetic. And because of the elevated insulin, they will start to gain weight because of that medication. Yeah. So stress is a big one. Um, and oddly, inflammation is. That's not something someone can control quite as well. But when someone is experiencing a, an acute infection mm -hmm. or an active phase of an autoimmunity, when the inflammation is up, they will be demonstrably insulin resistant. And then the insulin resistance will improve as the inflammation improves. Which is circular, right? Because as their insulin resistance worsens, yep. then now you've got lipid hypertrophy. It's spilling mm -hmm. more inflammatory cytokines. Forward feeding cycle there. Yes, yes, without a doubt. Yep. Yeah. Well, and another thing, when I think about stress, um, it just made me think about, you know, what's going on right now during this pandemic and time of COVID and people wanting to optimize their immunity. Is there any sort of association between insulin resistance and uh, decreased or, or decreased immunity, I guess? Yes, there is. Yeah. So like every cell in the body, those cells involved in immunity the, the leukocytes and, and lymphocytes, they do respond to insulin. And that insulin sensitivity is a part of the immune response, the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines to help call to action when, when we need um, uh, to, to, to mount an inflammatory defense, the production of antibodies. Um, all of these events um, are, to, to varying degrees, insulin dependent. So yes, insulin resistance can compromise immunity. And then, of course, the opposite the direction goes the other way, uh, like you just mentioned, where compromised immunity can contribute to insulin resistance. And in the midst of this global fear of a virus, um, we know, based on the best available evidence, if someone has an underlying metabolic um, illness mm -hmm. or, or poor metabolic health, they are much more likely to have an adverse um, response or an adverse um, recovery or event in uh, with COVID-19 and, right. and and indeed obesity is the single most relevant pre-existing condition uh, so uh, although the study that published this finding out of New York they kind of were trying to be clever about it and they said heart disease was the most common variable and then obesity and then diabetes and then morbid obesity but my thought is why split up the obesity into two different categories mm -hmm. when you put those categories together <laughs> obesity beats right. um, heart disease by by almost 50 percent wow. so it's yeah. significantly more relevant so all the more reason 
uh, and I don't mean for this to be a tangent, but I just have to say it. <laughs> if, if we hope to really have a, 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 a smart response to this virus and indeed any infectious pathogen, we need to sure let's 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 um, cooperate with the measures we've been told to with regards to social distancing. But my thought is it's inevitable. We're going to get infected at some point. This virus is a new part of the global ecosystem. It is not going to be eradicated. We don't have much success in that regard anyway with viruses. So it's a matter of time. We're going to get it. Let's make sure we are as prepared personally, physically as possible. Sure. And one way we can do that, I know easier said than done, mm -hmm. is to just shore up our metabolic defenses, which then will shore up our immune defenses as well. Perfect. Yeah. And it just ex exposes how timely this information is. Absolutely. Um, and, and how important it is that we should be having this conversation right now, um, as always. Yeah. And um, yeah. just want to say thank you so much for for spending the time with us and, and laying out this this wonderful uh, mechanism of insulin resistance. Before I let you go, <laughs> I have one sort of just completely off topic question um, that we normally do with our guests. We call it the fireball. And the fireball. Uh, so this question is, uh, it might surprise you, but I'm curious, do you have a favorite soup? Oh my God, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I do, I do. My, my grandma, um, and we called her Baba because my grandpa's line um, were Soviet uh, Jews. And mm -hmm. so there's always this kind of Russian sort of theme. So we called her Baba. Uh, she makes, she made this, uh, what, what we call, I guess, a hamburger soup. And it is just what? with hamburger mm -hmm. and then some vegetables. <laughs> I, I, I literally dream about it. <laughs> so good. I have such an affection for that soup from my childhood and my wife makes it wonderfully bless oh, her heart. Great. That's something she incorporated <laughs> when I brought the I brought the recipe card into the marriage and she <laughs> she she then made it so yeah uh, hamburger soup oh, I love it oh my goodness well Dr. Ben Bickman this has been a great conversation and I'm gonna have to listen back to this several times just to kind of get all of this information <laughs> but we were we are honored that you spent the time with us and we're gonna encourage our listeners to check out this genius book why we get sick the hidden epidemic at the root of most chronic disease and how to fight it and with that Ben we can't thank you enough for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Michael Patty, thanks so much for the invitation. I had a great time. See? You were right. Warned you. You were right. Yep. My brain almost exploded, but in the yep. best of ways. Yep. Because I think I'm much like many doctors out there who only had a cursory understanding of the mechanism of insulin resistance. And now you have a totally different understanding about fat cells. Oh, what they sure. do, what they're capable of, how they grow, how they multiply, what He's the difference a, is. He did such a great job of explaining it and teaching it. It was so clear. I followed all of it. Yeah, it was excellent. He should be a teacher. <laughs> or maybe write a book. Perhaps. <laughs> Way to follow your dream, Dr. Beckman. Crushing it. Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to talk health and wellness. Well, that's super vague. With Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, come on. These are lies. Not letting it go. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. You know, there's something to talking to some of these genius people. I have a crush on Ben Bickman. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Me too. <laughs>